This comes from Matthew uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, and it says this. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So we are in a series of messages called Access, and we are going through the Lord's Prayer together over the Advent season. And we've looked at uh, the first uh, several petitions, and uh, I've, I've kind of flip-flopped the last ones because I figured if you were bringing guests, you probably didn't want me to talk about uh, Satan all on Christmas Eve morning. So I figured we would do that today, uh, and we will look at forgiveness next week. So I've kind of jumped around a bit there. Uh, one of my kids has asked for walkie-talkies. Uh, for Christmas. So I think he imagines himself uh, being able to devise plans to uh, usurp the power of his older sister with his friends around the neighborhood and around the globe, you know, just scheming together on those walkie-talkies. And, and he has no clue what a walkie-talkie is actually made for. He just knows that it's easier to get than a cell phone. And so... Uh, <clears throat> And so he's asked for these, and, and, and hopefully, you know, maybe, maybe someone will get him a pair of walkie-talkies so that he can and share those. But, uh, you know, walkie-talkies were invented uh, for war. They were invented during World War II uh, to help the, the commanders uh, communicate with the people that were on the front lines, strategic things that they needed to know, information. And, uh, you know, John Piper uh, says that, that prayer is like a walkie-talkie. Here's what he says. He says, Prayer is a wartime walkie-talkie for spiritual warfare, not a domestic intercom to increase the comfort of the saints. What if we are actually at war? What if that's actually reality for us? What if that's not just something that we say, but it's something that we uh, experience? I mean, after all, you know, Paul tells Timothy to, to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight of the faith. Uh, Paul says to the church in Ephesus, uh, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. He says that's what the battle is about. And you know, this morning, if we're honest, life feels like war. If you're being honest with where you are this morning and what has come your way in the last weeks and months, as you look back on 2017, you think about it, it probably feels like war. And the reason that it feels like war is because it is war. And so what, what we want to do today is we want to uproot this idea of the cartoon devil that kind of sits on your shoulder. We want to just uproot that. And we want to we see our relationship with God as the strength to empower us to face the enemy as we encounter him day by day day. 2 Corinthians 2.11 says that we shouldn't be ignorant of the enemy's designs. And so what I want to do today is, is to help us look uh, at what the scriptures say about our enemy, the adversary, uh, to, to look at the power that we have as those who follow Jesus and the power that he no longer has, and to look, about what it, look at what it looks like to walk redemptively in God's love uh, day to day uh, as, we, as we go through life. So the access that we have to him gives us, access we have to, G, to, to our Father in heaven through the work of Jesus, gives us power to overcome the, the enemy. But it's, but it's confusing because it's, it's this power that's, that's kind of like we already have it because Jesus has already conquered the enemy through his life, death, and resurrection. 
but we're not yet experiencing it fully. And so what prayer is, is the walkie-talkie to the one who's already won the war, teaching us how to navigate life. And so that's what we're doing. That's why Jesus says, hey, there are some things you need to pray about in life, and this is one of them that you need to be praying about frequently. So the big idea of where we're going today is this. The enemy is bound, and we are delivered because Jesus reigns. And the way that the sermon's going to look this morning is like this. We're going to look at part one, the enemy. We're going to unpack who this guy is, what he's come to do, where he's come from, and that the enemy is bound. What does that mean, that the enemy is bound? Then we're going to look at the, the enemy being bound because Jesus reigns and what that means for us uh, in, in our deliverance uh, from his schemes. You know, in, in, uh, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Mike alluded to this a few minutes ago, uh, but, but I think Peter gives us a, an accurate description of who our enemy is and what he's come to do. He says this in 1 Peter 5, verses 8 through 10. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. What he's saying here is this, is that daily resistance of the enemy is a new part of your life as a Christian. So our struggle against the enemy, that we wage war, it's, it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against the enemy and his schemes, the resistance that you feel against them, the war that you feel waging war, is how God is making you like His Son. So it's not a matter of if you experience temptation. It's a matter of when you experience temptation. And this is why Jesus tells us to pray about it every day so that we can learn how to resist them. Because as James says, if you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But the problem is the power to resist the enemy and his schemes doesn't come from within ourselves. It comes from Christ's power living inside of us. And when we pray to God, that's what we're seeking, Him to draw out the power uh, of, of His kingdom reigning in and through us. So let's look at this first part, uh, the enemy. So kind of two parts here under the enemy is um, <clears throat> what does the enemy do and how does he work? So let me say this as we get into this. And this is going to be, I'm going to be all over the map on the scriptures here because I want to pull in the full counsel of God's word to inform our, our conscience this morning so that we can know how to resist the enemy. So let me say this. The enemy is most active when he is least noticed. Let me say that again. The enemy is most active in our lives when he is least noticed. C.S. Lewis caught on to this uh, in his book, The Screwtape Letters. Uh, Megan and I went on an anniversary trip in October, and uh, for some reason, I just, I, it was kind of funny. I, I decided I just wanted to study uh, in the Word all about the enemy and the devil on our anniversary trip, and then I wanted to read C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters, and so I, I did that, and uh, one of the things that, that strikes me about the Screwtape Letters, which is this, this, uh, this, this allegory that's written about um, basically a, a senior level uh, devil 
uh, informing uh, like an entry-level devil in how to tempt Christians. It's kind of it's a twisted way of looking at temptation, but it's really helpful. And one of the things he said is, is in this, is that the safest road to hell is the gradual one. And, and I think he picks up on something. I mean, the enemy... He, he, is not, he is not an eternal being. He is not all-knowing. He has to learn how to tempt. He has to, learn how to, uh, he, has to, he has to learn how to tempt us in every single way. And so he's been learning throughout all of these years how to be most deceiving, how to be most accusatory, how to be most sly with his lies. And he's been doing this throughout the history of the world. And so he's crafty at it. And one of the things that we notice about the enemy is that he's most effective when he's least noticed. So I want to look at just three ways that the, that the enemy has come, things that he's come to do. Uh, this is not exhaustive, but it's the three predominant ways that I see in the Scripture. First one is this, he's come to deceive. He's come to deceive us. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-5 through five says this, For though we walk in the flesh day to day, we are not waging war against the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So, So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that the warfare that you feel is is real and the power that you need to resist the enemy comes not from yourself, but from Jesus. It's divine power that he's given us through the power of his spirit. And that power that he's given has enabled us to break free from the strongholds that have captured our life. So maybe it's a... Maybe it is a reoccurring, just egregious sin in your life. It's, the, it's a very grievous thing that just keeps popping up, and you keep saying, you know, tomorrow morning I'm going to be different. I'm not going to gossip. I'm not going to have lust in my heart. I'm not going to be, uh, you know, a, a hyper-materialist. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to keep pr- pursuing the same things. Tomorrow's a new day. I'm going I'm to do it. These themes keep coming up in your life. And you wonder where you're ever going to get the power to overcome the temptations that you face and the fear that you have. And, and Paul says, look, it would be wise for us to step back and to realize what's going on because the answer to your struggle is not try harder, go faster. It, it, it's not white knuckle it until you figure it out. It's to step back and realize where you will actually get power from to overcome the enemy. And he says that, that it comes from this divine power that we get through the Holy Spirit. And that, and that in order to, to take these thoughts captive, we've got to stop and we've got to pause and wonder where the thought came from. So many times, church, what we do with the enemy is we come into agreement with him. A thought is planted in your mind. It's an accusation. It's a judgment. Uh, it's, it's some kind of deceit in your life. And you, we just own it. And we begin to come into agreement with the devil, and, and the thoughts that he plants in our mind become ours, and we own them, we begin to live them out. And because we've been deceived, we are now deceiving others. But the, but the beauty of the gospel is that we're not alone, that God has come to rescue us, that God has come to give us power and life, but we've got to stop in those moments when we realize that there's something in our minds, something in our hearts 
that does not belong there. And the work of the Holy Spirit has come to sanctify us and work those things out of our lives through faith. And so the question is, where are we walking in deception this morning? Where are we deceived? What do we trust to give us life that will never give us life? What are those places for you? I think deception is often revealed in my heart through inadequacy. And I believe that something will be better about my life if I only had this. And I become deceived and I become blinded. The scriptures say that we're all born blind to the things of God. Ephesians chapter 2 says that we're, that we're born blind following, you know, the prince of the power of the air, the, the sky. And so, you know, we're, we're blind and so we need to be awakened. And so when God gives us new spiritual sight to see the gospel, to see Jesus as king, he begins to work these things out of us. He takes the blinders off and he exposes the things that we used to take as truth. And we begin to second guess those things. And we begin to see who we are in light of who Jesus is. Second thing that, that the enemy does is he's, he's the father of lies, as John chapter 8 says. He lies. So, cake. Somebody on Friday night, speaking of Friday night, it was, a, it was a, some leaders in our church gathered for a party. Somebody left a really good cake at my house on Friday night. And it has been the source of tremendous temptation in my house. I'm not, I'm not kidding. So, um, so it started like this, okay? Here's what happened. So Saturday morning, Megan and I wake up, and we do the thing that any of you would do. We eat cake for breakfast. Then last night, I'm putting the kids to bed. Megan's out with uh, some friends at a birthday party. And I'm putting the kids to bed, and I'm sitting uh, with, with, uh, with Tatum in, in our room, and, and we're reading. And uh, Tatum walks in, and, and she goes, I smell cake on your breath. <laughs> and I say, hmm, wow. You know, and then I say, you okay, did you eat cake? He goes, no. And then, and then a, a second later goes on, I say, Caden, did you eat cake? And he goes, yes. I ate cake. And so, sure enough, like we're walking up the steps, to, I'm going to put him to bed, and, uh, and then Caden uh, looks at her and he goes, I smell cake on your breath. And uh, sure enough, she had, I'd asked her and she said, no, I didn't eat cake. And uh, she'd eaten the cake too. You know, it's just like, you know, it's, it's just this source of temptation. So I, like a good father, uh, went in and, and had a couple last bites of the cake, and then I threw the cake away to get rid of the, uh, the temptation. You know, so I asked, you know, the kids, we're, we're talking about repentance and lying and all that kind of stuff last night, and uh, uh, I just said, you know, why, why did you feel like you needed to lie? And uh, they both kind of said, you know, because we were afraid of what would happen if we told the truth. And, and that's, that's the lie. That's the biggest lie the devil ever told, that you have to be afraid of God. That you, that you have to live in fear if God really knew who you were, then there's no way he would love you. There's no way he would save you. There's no way that he would give you his grace if he really know, knew who you were. And that's the lie that we believe. And that's the lie that every other lie is covering up. Every other lie that we tell is covering up the lie that we're so afraid of being known and what would happen in light of that. But, but our Heavenly Father, his love can't change. And you know why it can't change? Because Jesus overcame the Father. He, he overcame the Father of lies. When he, when he rose, and, he, and he, put, he put to bed, he buried the lies so that we could be in solid and steady relationship with our Father in heaven. 
Church, the, the truth is you only tell lies because you're believing lies. It's the truth for me. You know, I told you the truth that I ate the cake on Saturday morning, okay? I'm clean there. But no, seriously, like, you think about the, the little places that you lie in your life, and you, we, we, we talked about this earlier in the Sermon on the Mount uh, this year, but we lie because we're believing lies. And that's what comes from our hearts. The third thing I want to look at is this, is accusation. Revelation chapter 12, uh, verse 10 says this, And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. Accusation. I think this is probably the most predominant way in my heart that the enemy works. So how do you know that you're living in light of an accusation, that you've been accused of something? Well, an accusation is the false voice of obligation, duty, expectation, and guilt. So for some reason, you feel obligated to something you don't know how you felt you, 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 you kind of came into. For some reason, you feel this sense of duty, even though it's not really something that maybe God has led you into. For some reason, you feel this expectations that are weighing you down, this guilt that just buries you, this shame that drowns you. And you wonder where it came from. Every accusation that's ever come on the face of the planet has come from the enemy. His entire aim in life is to take you out. And the way to do that is to cause you to doubt your standing before God. He wants you to doubt the only thing he can't have anymore. Remember this time I was on I was on the school bus I was probably nine and um, I, I I went through a, a stint uh, where I was just getting in a lot of trouble I mean like a lot and so uh, you know we had written with permanent marker on the seat or thrown something out the window or something anyway I got in a lot of trouble I got suspended from the bus and this was a big problem because when you get suspended off the bus and you have two full time working parents somebody has to take off work to come get you from school and you can bet my parents were not happy about that. And so um, I devised this plan uh, to make myself feel better about getting kicked off the bus. And then what I did was uh, I told everyone at, at the, I went to this, I think I went to this childcare place at the time, and I told everyone that was on the bus, probably 30 kids, that they were all getting kicked off the bus. I said, I said you guys are all, the bus driver, Miss Ann, is so mad. You guys are all kicked off the bus. You guys are all in so much trouble. And I worked up this big story full of lies and accusations that weren't true because of the way that I felt on the inside because I was so afraid of having to tell my parents that. I accused them because I was accused. And, and the accusation against me was correct. Against them, it wasn't. But the enemy, his entire aim is to devalue your life. So think about this. When you, when you feel less than, Christ, than, than Jesus tells you that you are because of his love, when you feel less, you, you are being accused some way, shape, or form. And, and the typical way that we, that we oppose this, these accusations is that we, um, we, we just kind of move toward something else and, and we, we push off on others or, or we, we just kind of buckle down and, and double down. But Jesus has come that we may have life and have it abundantly. Satan's entire aim is for our perception in life to be based on his deception. And he'll work at that however uh, he can. So secondly, let's look at this. How does the enemy work? There's this guy named William Grinnell that uh, several hundred years ago, he wrote a 1,200-page book on spiritual warfare. Go check that out at the library. Anyway, I'm going to sum it up for you here, a few of the ways that he says 
uh, that the enemy works. He says this, when the Christian is newly converted. So it's that, it's that parable of the soils, right? Where, where it talks about how the gospel falls, the gospel's like seed and it falls on different types of soil and different things happen based on the types of soil that are there. It's the same seed. And he says, you know, it's, it's like, it's like the, so, the seed that falls in the soil that's really shallow and it springs up really quick, but, but then the enemy comes and he plucks it away, he takes it away. Once, if, you're, if you're a new believer in here or you're on your road to belief in Christ, you can bet this, that the enemy is going to come after you and try to steal the truth that has been implanted in your soul. And he's going to do it with all the force that he can muster. So that's why it's so important not to live in isolation when you're in those moments. To submit yourself to other leaders, to a church, to other believers to help you walk and learn to walk in Jesus. The second thing is this, when, when the Christian is afflicted, so affliction can be like a physical ailment or you're just something that's happened in life that has caused you to, to just feel the sense of affliction, that things have happened to you. And, and what the enemy does in those moments is that he gets a foothold by getting you to second guess the plan of God and to begin to get you to doubt God's goodness in your life. And once he can, once he can get an inch of doubt in your heart, he'll take a mile. He'll do it every single time. And, and it's when you ask these types of questions. How could you, God? You know that the enemy has got... He's got his hook in there. He's hooked in, and he's got you doubting the goodness of God. It's when uh, you achieve notable success. The enemy is like all over you because he wants you to think that your life is really about you. That you don't really need God. It's when you're idle. So when you've got little to no ambition in life and you're pretty aimless, the enemy comes and he begins to manipulate our lives and to take advantage of that free time that we have and to use it for His purposes. It's when you're isolated. So if you're alone in here this morning, meaning that you um, are just outside of Christian community and fellowship where you are known and people know you, um, you're, you're, at, um, you're very vulnerable to the, the, the attacks of the enemy if you're in a place like that. It's really important to surround yourself with truth-tellers who will help you um, just kind of push away the lies that the enemy will try to tell you. And lastly, it's when you're dying. So when you're near the end, if your faith is not securely rooted in Jesus, the enemy will come and cause you to doubt everything because you see that the end is near and he comes. That's why it's so important to love people well all the way to the end, to help remind them of the, the goodness of the gospel in our Savior. Now the enemy, he works through the influence of, of our flesh um, and he works through the influence of the world. So the world is basically everything that's aimed against God. Every unbelieving person, every system that's constructed by the enemy, um, he, he works through those things in our lives. And the other, the other thing that's really hard for us to believe is that, that, that actually there, there's, the enemy is, is alive in us to some degree. He's, a, he's alive through our flesh, meaning uh, that... that it's like John Owen once said. He said, um, trials and temptations put nothing into a man. This is my favorite quote. So trials and temptations put nothing into a man. They only draw out what was there before. So when you fall into sin, when, 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 you, when you give into temptation, it was because there was, some, there was some area, some layer of unbelief living inside of you, and the enemy just took advantage of it. James 1.14 says each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. 
So there's something inside of us, these unredeemed places that Jesus is still, he's still taking back. Now, now I'm, not, I'm not saying that this is a salvific issue. We're justified before God, but the work of sanctification is to uproot the unbelief of the flesh that's so prevalent in our life. And it's why you keep doing the things that you hate. You know, in Romans chapter 7, where Paul goes on this whole thing, it's like, I keep doing the things that I hate, and, and, I, and I, I can't do the things that I want to do, and I do do the things I don't want to do. And it's really the warfare that we experience every day. It's why you do those things, because the flesh has still got to be put to death inside of us. We often uh, forget how twisted that we are, that, that our lives are truly set against God from birth. I mean, Ephesians 2 uh, says this, uh, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following, get this, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. That was every single one of us, apart from Jesus. We, we couldn't find our way, we couldn't feel our way to God. He had to come and grab us and awaken us and give us new hearts to believe. The Holy Spirit is undoing the flesh in our lives. This is why even though it's really painful to be exposed with your sin, it's, it's really painful to confess your sin because you realize, hey, I feel like I'm getting worse. And you're just becoming more aware of how you've always been. And that, is a, that is a kindness of God to lead us uh, to repentance. So I bet there's, if you look back on your week, I bet there's been some moments where maybe the enemy was at work in your life and you just chalked it up to a bad day. Or maybe the enemy was at work and you just chalked it up to that person over there or that situation over there. And all the while, the enemy is just having his way in our life. We're feeling accused. We're accusing others. We're being lied to. We're lying to others. We're being deceived. We're deceiving others. The enemy is at work. And it's so important, church, to know that about the enemy. That's why I'm spending most of my time this morning telling you about the enemy because I think that we... As, as Christians, we, we just chalk that up to something that's, that's just kind of out there. and we, we don't want to acknowledge spiritual warfare. But guys, it is all over the Bible. It's all over it. Thomas Brooks reminds us of this great truth. Though. He says this, Though he can never rob a believer of his crown, that means he can't, he can't, take, he can't take eternity away from you. He, he doesn't have that power. He's, he's bound. Though he can never rob a believer of his crown, Yet such is his malice and envy that he will leave no stone unturned to rob them of their comfort and peace to make their life a burden and a hell to them, to cause them to spend their days in sorrow and mourning and sighing and complaining and doubting and questioning. Church, I don't, I don't want to share this with you to instill fear, but to heighten awareness so that we can confess, we can uproot those lies through faith, believing in Jesus so let's, let's move on to the good news here. The enemy is bound. He's bound. And the, the way that the enemy tries to deceive us, even though he's bound, I mean, I want you to think about, you know, think about it like this. He, he desires us to fight him in our own strength. So, so that we, know that we know that life is a struggle. It just is. It feels like war all around us. And, and I was talking to this, uh, this, this young uh, lady that had come to, is coming to faith kind of right before our eyes this week, and, and I, I, was, I was talking to her like, hey, like, cheer up, life's going to get a lot harder when you follow Christ. 
You know, isn't it true, though? And people are like, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to be roses. No, it's going to be bad. You know, people are going to die. Things are going to happen. The enemy's going to come at you. It's going to really stink. But Jesus is so good. He's so much better than the pain that you're experiencing. I, I remember my mom was going through a really tough time. This is probably five years ago. My stepfather had just been diagnosed with bladder cancer, and uh, he was being rushed uh, to a hospital that was a couple hours away from their house, and it didn't look like he was going to make it. I mean, it was, it, was, it was dire straits, and my mom calls me, and I'm emotional, and she's uh, a bit emotional, and as we're, as we're talking on the phone, she goes, you know, God will never give us more than we can handle. And, uh, <clears throat> and many of us would nod our heads at that saying, but there was something that was just kind of troubled inside of me when she said that. And so we got off the phone, and I was being a kind son, uh, just trying to empathize with her in the moment. But the Holy Spirit just kind of broke me in that moment. And said, you've got to speak the truth in love to your mother. And so I called her back a few minutes later, and I said, Mom, what you said is not true. The God of the Bible that I read and that you read always gives us more than we can handle. He always does. And it's because He loves us so much that we can never trust in ourselves. See, the enemy wants you to think that you can handle life on your own, that you can live independently of him, but you'll never be able to do that. And to say and to believe that that is the mark of maturity is a lie straight from the pit of hell. Maturity means deep dependence upon Jesus. Always has, always will be. She, she was kind of quoting 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where Paul says, no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. You see, that sounds a little bit like God will never give you more than you can handle, but it's not the same. He's saying, God will always give you the power to resist the devil. But what you're going to be made aware of is the flesh, the desires of your flesh are so strong inside of you. So, are you trying to bind the enemy and knife fight the devil in your own strength this morning. You just think, if I, could, if I could just kind of push through this, I'll be good. The disciples, they believe the same thing. Luke chapter 10, Jesus sends out the 72 disciples and He gives them power to share the Gospel and over the spiritual forces. And they come back and they say this, Luke 10, 17-20. The 72 returned with joy saying, Lord, like, listen to this, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, and let me share a little something with you. I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions, which is the figurative language of the enemy, and over all the power of the enemy. And nothing shall hurt you eternally. Nevertheless, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in the fact that you have power because my spirit's alive in you. Instead, what should you, what should you trust in? What should you rejoice in? Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what he's saying is that the power for godliness, the power for defeating the enemy with the way that we live our lives comes from our identity in Christ, not, not the things that we think we can do for God. They were so excited to come back and tell Jesus, look what I've done. And Jesus stops them in their tracks and he's like, hey, listen, here's what I did. Satan's cast down. I saw him fall like lightning from heaven. He was in 
fellowship with me, but he, he's, he's now no longer in fellowship with me because of the darkness that lives inside of him. I think about the, the, the story of Job. It's really interesting, if you want to read Job 1 and 2, if you want to learn about the enemy and the power of God. And in Job 1 and 2, there's this situation where it says that Satan was roaming to and fro all over the earth, looking for someone to tempt, someone to deceive, some, someone to own. And God says, have you tried my servant Job? Have you tried him? I mean, he's, he's the most faithful. I mean, try Job out. He says, okay, now listen, you can do whatever you want to him, just don't harm his life. And so the enemy, enemy comes and he takes out everything, his whole family, all of his possessions, everything. And, and Job um, is, uh, is, is devastated, obviously, but he's still walking with God. He hasn't cursed God at this, at this point in his journey. And then, and then next the enemy comes back and he says, okay, let me, touch his, let me harm his life now. And then you see that, 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 that God, allows, God allows him to tempt him and, and to harm him even, even more. He doesn't take his life, but he harms him. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, who is this God that I'm following? Like, that he would allow this to happen? Like, like who is this? And what you begin to realize is that the enemy has always lived within the limits of God's sovereign reign. And ultimately, the enemy is serving the purposes of God. It doesn't feel like it in the moment, but he's always serving the purposes of God. He is under his rule and his reign. I think about Matthew chapter 12 where the Scriptures say this, but it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he has first bound the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. What, he is, what he's inferring to is the disciples have power over the enemy because Jesus has come in and he's tied the strong man up. I mean, I think about the picture of a, 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 of a, of a dog that, has lo- that, that barks a lot, but he's lost his bite. He's on a leash. I think about, you know, when I was, a, 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 when I was probably eight or nine, kind of that same, it was a rough couple years, I guess. Uh, I, there, so my, my best friend lived in this house. Then there uh, was the Cunningham house here, and then here was my house. And so... I would always try to go to his house. There was this problem, though, in going to my best friend's house is that the Cunninghams had this ferocious dog named Prissy. I'm not kidding, though. She was, she was something else. And, and so, like, here's what I would do to get to my, 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 uh, my friend's house is I would kind of look. I would kind of tiptoe to the property line. And I would look if Prissy wasn't I would just make a beeline for it. I would just run as hard as I could to Sean's house. And sometimes I would make it. Sometimes I would get halfway and she would come out. I would run back. I mean, it was just this awful thing. I was always running from her because she wasn't bound. She wasn't leashed. She was coming after me. I think so many times we think that the enemy is not bound. He's not on a leash. Because we hear the bark, we think that he can bite us. And he no longer has the power to do that. Jesus, the stronger man has bound Satan, the strong man. He's stronger. And our job, as Ephesians 6 would tell us, is to stand in the power of his strength. Like the best fighting that you and I will do, the best warfare that we will wage is on our knees. And it is on our knees because we are standing in the strength of God. And so he says resistance Waging warfare through prayer should be a part of our lives if we really understand what's going on. 
This should be a part of our lives. And lastly, the enemy is bound and we are delivered because Jesus reigns. So how is the enemy ultimately bound? Colossians 2 leads us to this. Colossians 2, verses 13-15. through He says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. It's kind of that theme again, right? You were dead. God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What did He do for us? He set it aside and He nailed it to the cross. And when He... When Jesus was nailed to the cross, when He Himself bore the infliction of the wrath of God that we deserve, when He did that, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He took the bullets from their guns. He put the leash on the dog. He disarmed them. So the irony is this, is that Satan with all of his evil schemes comes to destroy us And he comes to destroy Jesus. And really at the end, you see that that Satan's purposes have done precisely the opposite of what he intended. That that in his attempt to ruin mankind by, by killing Jesus, Satan only opened the door for a greater win. And that is an unbreakable union with Jesus forever, with our Father in heaven. We have access because of the cross. The enemy's main tactic is to lead you and me to a life of death, to a place of misery. But because Jesus has become death for us, we no longer fear death. Death has lost its sting. The stinger from the bee has been taken out. But the bee still flies around and he scares you, right? He's lost his sting because the sting of the enemy is death. 1 Corinthians 15 talks all about this. So here's, here's my question. Here's my closing right here. How are we going to last? How are we going to endure? Because every single moment of every single day, of every single week, of every single year, of every single generation has felt like a war, and it will continue to feel like that until King Jesus returns. We're not going to avoid temptation. We've got to figure out how to endure temptation, how to resist the enemy. Revelation chapter 12 gives us insight. And they conquered him. This is the church. By the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. He's saying this, every time we breathe in the victory of the cross, when we in Hail the victory that we have in King Jesus. And we exhale the peace that we have with God because of that. We breathe that in as frequently as we can. We stand for another moment. We stand for another year. We stand for another generation in God's might and His all-sufficiency. Even though in the moment it doesn't feel like you can go on. It doesn't feel like that because God gives us grace for the moment. He gives us grace for the day. He is constantly dispensing His grace toward us. And when we utter these words of desperation to God in the face of darkness, what we do is we wade into the mystery of who God is and what He is doing in the world, even though we can't understand it. He's given us enough information about Him to know 
That He doesn't lead us into temptation, but He delivers us from evil. So what I want to do now is I want to pray specifically that God would continue to deliver us. So let's, uh, let's just take a moment uh, to bow our heads before our Father in Heaven. And, uh, and I'll lead us in that time. Lord, Your Word says that we should pray that You wouldn't lead us into temptation. And God, when we read in the book of James, we know that You don't tempt us. So we understand that in light of the fact that Jesus came to deliver us. And so we can be certain that He won't lead us into temptation. But Lord, we have an enemy that seeks to lead us into temptation of all sorts. Even this moment, even this day, even in a church service, we're led into temptation, it feels like. But You give us power. So Lord, right now, I, I, uh, I just pray that, that we would be certain as Your people in our deliverance because of the reign of Jesus. Lord, I pray specifically for New City Church, for this church that's gathered here in Lawrenceville, that You would deliver us from the power of the enemy. That, that we, God, with great faith, would be able to look into the face of darkness and to believe that You even reign there. In the darkest moments, God, of the life of our church, in the darkest moments in the lives of our marriages, in the darkest moments of the lives of our families, God, that we would see that even there, You reign. And You are building a kingdom. Priesthood of all believers. And Your kingdom will have no end. Thank You, Jesus. Amen.